I want to know what the fuck this is all about. I gave you 48 hours to come up with something and the clock's running. Yeah, well, maybe I don't like the way you ask me, all right? Who gives a goddamn what you like? You're just a crook on a weekend pass. You're not even a goddamn name anymore. But get this, man. We ain't brothers, we ain't partners, and we ain't friends. And if Dan gets away with my money, you're going to be sorry you ever met me. I'm already sorry. Welcome to Now Playing's 48 Hours Movie Retrospective Series. I don't work like this, no deal. Listen, we ain't got no deal, I own your ass. No goddamn way to start a partnership. Hosted by Arnie. Look at you, you got a $500 suit on, you're still a low life. Yeah, but I look good. Stuart. You really are hopeless. That's what I always And Jacob. See how you need me a little more than you thought, I'm huh, Mr. K. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Jack, tell me a story. Fuck you. Oh, that's one of my favorites. Listener discretion is advised. Bullshit attitude and experience is what gets you through. Come on. Come on and experience some of my bullshit. Today, we're discussing 48 Hours, starring Nick Nolte, Eddie Murphy, directed by Walter Hill. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I'm your worst fucking nightmare, man, a spick with podcast. And Stuart? Wow, we're, we're going hard with this one. I'm just going to, like, <laughs> just step right over that. <laughs> what am I supposed to call you, burrito? So I'm like, what's the equivalent of watermelon? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This movie okay. is harsher than I remembered. <laughs> and this is Jacob, and this sucks. Eddie Murphy comes out with a new movie, so instead of being where I ought to be, home in bed with my gal, giving her the high hard one, I'm here doing this shit, doing podcast. Yes, we are. We are talking about what is the prototype, the true originator of the buddy cop film. Eddie Murphy, Nick Nolte. Buddy cop, though, that to me, that means they're both cops, and that is not the case with this one. Yeah, it's not my favorite genre. I'm just going to put it out there. If those that have already heard the Lethal Weapon shows, Rush Hour, Bad Boys, they don't need me to elaborate on the fact, yeah, I don't usually get this kind of stuff. But I do remember liking 48 Hours. I saw this mm, on cable in the 80s. And remember thinking that it was different for Eddie Murphy because it was darker. And in my mind, because it came from the director of The Warriors, it had more of that kind of feel to it. Yeah, this is our first time discussing Eddie Murphy on the main feed. A decade ago, we reviewed The Golden Child as an Easter egg podcast. Golden Child is still my favorite Eddie Murphy movie. I don't think it's probably his best movie, but it's the one I like the best. And this was his first movie after being an SNL phenom. SNL was probably going to be canceled. They were calling it Saturday Night Dead because all the original stars had left. They brought in... I watched some of these episodes. They were painfully unfunny with Gilbert Gottfried. As a regular? Yeah. The 1980-81 season, Gilbert Gottfried. Joe Piscopo. Like, talk about overrated. Like, that guy... Mm. At the end of that season, everybody was fired except Piscopo and Murphy. 
I don't watch Saturday Night Live. I'll just put it out there. I see bits. I see skits. But I don't think I've ever even sat down and watched a whole show. Yeah, thank God for YouTube so I could just see the good skits and I don't have to sit through everything. Something I would do in high school. And I do remember, like, I, I in high school taking a video production class where you mostly just watch movies. And, it, and every once in a while you'd actually pull out a camcorder and, and have to film something. But... I remember the whisperings like, oh, did you know Eddie Murphy? Maybe they were showing us some Eddie Murphy movie. And it's like, oh, let's do his Mr. Robinson thing. And, you know, from SNL, like I had never knew before then that he was on SNL. But it was like this big deal that Eddie Murphy had done that. And like, yeah, tapes going around to that in that class, just cracking up at it. I mean, you can't overstate his importance to SNL. He'd only done it a couple of seasons, but NBC found him so valuable He was incredibly rich before doing 48 Hours. He had a palatial mansion, is how it was described by one of the writers of 48 Hours. Because of SNL? Like, this is before Raw, this is before everything. Yes. And this is a stunner, because I I knew he was young, but this kid, kid, I'm going to use that word, 19 years old when he's on television. I mean, like, who gives a 19-year-old millions of dollars? That seems like a... Uh, you get what you get with that. But Lauren Michaels, I guess. <laughs> yeah. What what an amazing breakthrough to have so early. I mean, it explains why I've always felt like Eddie Murphy looks young is that, you know, he, he broke in the business so early. And, and it was this movie almost instantaneously that made him a megastar. I don't think he looks as young as he is when I saw SNL. You know, he looked mid-20s. I think he was able to play older very well. But yeah, 19 and 1980 when he went on TV. And you talk about this making him a star. I've never seen this one. I, I know 48 Hours. Oh, it's it's an alleged classic. I guess I'll, I'll let you know what I think at the end of this show. But I remember seeing commercials for this all the time, play, just playing on TV all the time, like on a Saturday and stuff. Or maybe it was another 48 Hours. I don't remember. But there was 48 Hours. I remember seeing the commercials all the time, but never sat down to watch it. I saw this film probably in 85 or 86 on video. I'd seen Beverly Hills Cop and some SNL with Eddie Murphy, but after Beverly Hills Cop, I wanted to be Eddie Murphy. Not a movie star, but Axel Foley and who he was on stage in Delirious. And for a racially closed-minded set of parents who also didn't like a lot of cursing, they didn't necessarily like who I was becoming as I watched Beverly Hills Cop every single day and was like, I must see everything Eddie Murphy does. And so I got this on video. I was 12, a little young for it, but I remembered really liking it. I hadn't seen it that often, though. I can't remember the last time I watched it, 20 years, maybe more. So I was very interested to revisit this. Agreed. And again, as someone that is a fan of director Walter Hill, I like Eddie Murphy okay, but I haven't really gone back to his old movies, and I definitely don't see the new movies. His good stuff. (laughs) Yeah, you got to stop sometime in 1990. You got to stop. I saw Dreamgirls. I haven't even seen Shrek. So, like, I really don't know what the man has been doing in the last 20 years. (laughs) Daddy Daycare, Norbit, Pluto Nash. Dreamgirls. That's it. Oh, and Dolomite. Dolomite, he's good there, yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed that one. So, yes, I my sense is they're not all that good <laughs> in the last 20 years. No, no, that was a return to form. The thing is, people love Norbit. People love Nutty Professor. They made tons of money. So you say they're not good, but yet somebody's turning out for them. 
Well, yeah, because we were just coming to grips that maybe Eddie Murphy could make really bad movies. So we're still going to those early bad ones, but we learned our lesson. And I'm going to just throw it out there. I think comedians are almost movie proof. I feel like most comedians make bad movies. It's really rare that you have uh, a comedian become a fine actor. Usually the movie is a vehicle by which they can deliver new material. And if you like that persona, you will forgive all of the movie's insufficiencies in terms of storyline, special effects, supporting characters, structure, all the things we love to talk about here and now playing. It's why we probably haven't done a lot of comedies. It's because I don't feel like comedy movies are built in a way that it's easy to critique them. You either like the personality or you don't. Yeah, I quickly learned something with comedic actors, like when they get a sitcom or they get a movie and then like I go back, oh, this person's really funny. Let me watch some of their old stand up. I'm like, oh, so the, the purpose of these movies or these sitcoms are just to recycle these jokes because people laughed at them at the stand up comedy club. So they're going to laugh at them on TV or in a movie like, yeah, it really is just can we recycle the material that has made them famous or got them noticed by some Hollywood exec and shove that into a movie somehow? Well, that really depends on if. The movie is a star vehicle for the comedian or if the comedian is cast in a movie. And what I've found is a lot of times people doing stand-up comedy really don't want to be comedians. They're doing it to get noticed. They're doing it to get acting jobs. Case in point, Dennis Leary. He wanted to be a dramatic actor. He ended up stealing a comedy routine, becoming really famous. And then they gave him the ref where he basically did that stand-up comedy routine with Kevin Spacey on screen. But... Sometimes, like 48 Hours here, this was not written with Eddie Murphy or Nick Nolte in mind. This has been a script floating around since 1972. Yeah, I read a little bit about it. It was originally called Lone Out, and the whole premise was, what if you give a cop that can't have a good partner a criminal and partner with him? That was just the joke of it was that it was cop and criminal working together on a case. The original story is the script. The governor of Louisiana's daughter was kidnapped and a criminal strapped dynamite to her head. To her head, because no other part, if you blow it up, is going to do any damage to her. Like <laughs> He announced there were 48 hours to pay the ransom or he was going to blow her up. So speed without a bus. And so they got the meanest cop in New Orleans who goes to the worst prison in Louisiana and gets the most vicious criminal in the history of the state, a Cajun, because he has special knowledge about the devious ways of the kidnapper who used to be his cellmate. Okay. I, like, there has to be a connection. You don't just go get a tough guy out of lockup, but okay. So they used to occupy the same cell. And yeah, that's a good, again, I think if you're thinking in terms of chemistry, it creates tension between the two main characters and a reason to work together. Sounds like a fun premise. I don't know about the dynamite on the girl's head, but <laughs> you know, again, these things don't matter when you like the people involved. So who was involved, Arnie? I had read that originally it was going to be Clint Eastwood yep. with Richard Pryor. Okay, I could see that Richard Pryor was the black actor, black comedian you would get in the late 70s, early 80s. He was a superstar. If it's going to be Richard Pryor around that time, though, you got to have Gene Wilder. Like, they were the ones always teaming up. Yeah, you wonder why they, they would mess with Eastwood. But Eastwood is a huge star and brings a different mix. Well, he had Dirty Harry, right, at the time? If you're trying to bring a crime element into it, if one side is funny and one side is 
dramatic, you get the right balance because you don't want it to become farce. Or if you do, you want Gene Wilder. And Clint wanted to be the convict in this scenario. I think that's interesting because he was. I mean, people think Dirty Harry, but Dirty Harry was an anti-establishment cop in some respects. He just took the outlaw man with no name persona and then gave him a badge. That's sort of what makes that series so unique is that nobody really liked Dirty Harry and he liked nobody. So in, in that way, he could still be a man alone, apart, not part of the system. Yeah, making him the criminal makes some kind of sense. I don't know about Richard Pryor pulling off cop, though. That doesn't, I don't think that would work. (laughs) Yeah, and Eastwood wouldn't play the cop because this is a Paramount movie and he didn't want to piss off Warner Brothers where he was doing Dirty Harry. Mm -hmm. But this kind of sat around and turn around and the convict that Eastwood would end up playing was in Escape from Alcatraz. Mm -hmm. That's true. He did play a prisoner in that movie. And so this sat on a shelf for a long time, but Walter Hill had been involved since 72. And then Walter Hill got the idea, what if we start this up again with Nick Nolte? Okay, I got a question about Nick Nolte, because I we talked about him with Ang Lee's Hulk. That was post that mugshot that came out of him. Like, I feel like I'm familiar with that version of Nick Nolte, but I do feel like he's a generation earlier than me. In a, a lot of ways, he's like Warren Beatty, where it's like just movies just before my time when I really got into him. Like, he feels like a more dramatic actor, not someone I would associate with action or action comedy. So it, it's a little weird seeing him here for me. Here's the thing that people don't even associate with him anymore, but like People Magazine did give him Sexiest Man Alive. Believe it or not, we think of him <laughs> as the crusty over the hill hick. That mugshot, I'm telling you. But yes, in the 70s, I think it was three things. There was a TV miniseries called Rich Man, Poor Man. I have no idea what it's about. I've got two guesses. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's about a guy with money and a guy without. <laughs> but that was back in the day when a TV miniseries could reach a very broad, much bigger than movies, kind of broad audience. 50 million people would stay home and watch Rich Man, Poor Man. So you could be a big star in that way. Then he did a football kind of drama comedy, North Dallas 40. And Peter Benchley, the guy that wrote Jaws, his next book was adapted into this you know, sea diving, treasure hunting movie called The Deep, and Nick Nolte was the star. So he was about five years of being a leading man when he was cast in this. I always think of him as crusty because when I got to know him first was this, then was down and out in Beverly Hills. He always seemed like a grumpier Gary Busey to me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good comparison. They do have a real similar look and kind of vibe and give no fucks attitude. I believe both would be drunk on the set the whole time. It turned out, (laughs) according to the writer who wrote some journals, Nick Nolte is a very kind guy, really nice, although he does enjoy vodka with his orange juice in the morning. But uh, apparently he was not the incoherent drunk on set that I would have assumed him to be all the way through Hulk and after. No, no, he's definitely had, uh, I think, good dramatic work. I mean, I do think he's had more success later in his career he got oscar nominations and and built a different brand but back then it was an interesting moment it was the rare time when people were actually thinking he was a handsome young star like a robert redford Uh, which is again that's so not how i think about nick nolte but that was kind of what they were going for in casting him as a cop and with nick nolte and walter hill attached this film was greenlit but still want richard pryor (laughs) 
Of course. I mean, but what? He's too busy doing the toy in Superman 3? The toy would open the same day as 48 hours. I saw that, yeah. Oof. I know I was at the toy opening weekend. I was not at 48 hours. I saw the toy in theaters. I don't know if it was opening weekend. That That is true. I, I did see it in theaters. Who knows when it was? Yeah, I'll second the love the toy. I didn't see this movie until much later. But uh yeah, you do want Richard Pryor because I do feel like uh, if you want particularly an R-rated comedy, he was known for being a genius with a four-letter word. But Eddie Murphy is what? A guy that's been on TV for 18 months? Yeah, when Pryor was a hard no, they're like, we know who to get now. Gregory Hines. <laughs> who? <laughs> the tap dancer. Like, he was on Broadway mostly. He did White Nights and... uh he ended up doing kind of a buddy cop thing with Billy Crystal, Running Scared. I don't know if you remember that one. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, I don't know why Ben Vereen wasn't the third choice there. <laughs> yeah. So they basically, we have a very short list of black actors. Sidney Poitier <laughs> is way too damn old. And so we got three. And then we got this kid. This one only came up because Walter Hill was dating Eddie Murphy's manager. Oh, well, hey, that I mean, that's not a strange story in Hollywood. Like, so many jobs happen because somebody's dating somebody. Okay. Yeah, so the t- he got to see a tape, probably never had watched Saturday Night Live before, saw that this guy could do a R- Richard Pryor impersonation really well, and said, <laughs> okay, we'll take fake Richard Pryor. Yeah, so th- he was brought out, and, I mean, he was not paid a king's ransom. I think it was something like $200,000 for filming the movie he had to show up late because he had to finish filming saturday night live first i did look that up i wanted to know like there's no way they got the same amount nick nolte got a million dollars eddie murphy yeah i got two hundred thousand. something tells me that won't hold when we get to the sequel and paramount hated eddie murphy hated him Take a guess as to why a 21-year-old kid that, you know, is used to doing his own bits on television suddenly has to read a script, you know, no lines, repeat scenes from different angles. Like, it's a quite a transition. Frankly, if you're not an actor, if you're a comedian, the comedian's realm is on the stage. They're in control. You go on a movie set and suddenly you're taking orders. Yeah, he apparently was really bad, really, really bad during the first days of shooting and not funny. Was that most of the scenes then? Because that's how this film came across. Like, what do we know what was shot first? Because his performance is a surprise to me in this. The stuff that was shot first ended up being all reshot. Oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> it was that bad. We don't even see the real, yeah, this is before we have deleted scenes on a Blu-ray. Yeah, we'll never know how bad those first weeks were. Paramount said, fire Murphy or we're pulling the plug. Hill said, fire Murphy and I walk. And it wasn't because Hill loved Murphy. It was because Hill said, if I let the studio make this call, they're going to make every call for the rest of the picture. I just have to dig in my heels and say no on this one, or they're going to make me their bitch the rest of the film. Right. But then secretly, Hill got an acting coach on set. Yeah, I've heard that Nick Nolte helped him a lot because, again, I, I think about it. Like, you show up on set, you didn't learn your lines, you're going to riff, you're going to improv, and you have no idea what's happening in the movie. They don't shoot these things in sequence, so you don't know what is going on in the plot. And so I, what I hear is Nick Nolte 
did a lot to help Eddie maintain where his character was in the storyline. And I think they rewrote it so that Eddie could play off of him more, that it ended up being more of a sort of sparring match between the two. Yeah, what they had was there's a number of writers on this. Roger Spottiswood was the one who wrote the very first script, Dynamite on the Head. He also uh, directed Terror Train, just for the record. Walter Hill got it and rewrote it with Eastwood in mind. Then it was sent to Stephen E. D'Souza, who works on, like, everything. Yeah, a lot of action movies. Commando and Die Hard were the big ones. I guess Hill hated whatever D'Souza wrote. And so he, without telling D'Souza, hired Larry Gross, who I don't really know much about him, but he's written a lot about 48 Hours that's out there if you want to read daily journals of the filming. I did read them. And Larry Gross was secretly hired to be on set every day, rewriting the script to be to the actors. Mm -hmm. What Hill and what Gross have said is this movie isn't improv. What would happen is sometimes Eddie would come up with a line of improv or Nolte would, and then they'd take it, refine it, put it in the script, and then they'd say it. Nolte has gone out and said this movie's mostly improv, but it may just be a different definition. Yeah, regardless, it sounds like that script is changing every day. I could see how Nolte would call that improv. And Hill knew this story was nothing tremendously original. He was saying while filming, this is going to live and die based on the chemistry between our two leads. Because the plot, what's the plot? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I make that argument about most comedians' movies. You don't see it because of the plot. You don't see it because of the tightly choreographed structure of it all. Like, no, you you see it because you like that personality. And yeah, the fact that they had faith enough in Eddie Murphy to go through with it, even after he was delivering bad takes, probably had to do with the fact that whenever he delivered a good take, it was lightning in a bottle, right? I heard that they totally redid what's now known as the redneck bar scene, was something that was originally written as like a black club. And they just, they realized that Eddie Murphy is at his best when he's dealing with animosity. Yeah, and that is the best scene in this film. So they they got something right. Apparently, after that scene was filmed, Hill just looked over at producer Joel Silver and said, I'm rich. <laughs> he knew this movie was going to make him a lot of money. How old is Joel Silver? He's involved. This guy is like a vampire. He's just been around forever. This was one of his early films. This was his film coming off the disaster of Xanadu. Mm, yeah. And it is a huge hit. It stomps all over the toy. The toy made about $50 million. This ended up grossing all told. It came out in December. Kind of a weird time. But that's we're covering it in December. $80 million, which is... It doesn't sound like a lot, but that is blockbuster. There are Oh, for 82? Yeah. One other comedy at that time made that money, and that was Porky's. Well, this was also before video was widespread, and it was just a slow grocer. It opened against two comedies, The Toy and Airplane 2, and came in third. And yet it had legs and just kept going. But Stuart, you keep calling this a comedy, a comedy, a comedy. This is not a comedy. It's Eddie Murphy. It's got to be one. I think that is the surprise when you go back to it. <laughs> I, you're right. You're absolutely right. And again, it was what I remembered liking about the movie was that Walter Hill brought some of his action verve that in his best movies I've enjoyed. But you cast Eddie Murphy into anything, and I think it's hard to, to not call it a comedy. Even Golden Child was like a horror movie that they just forced it to be a comedy because they realized it's Eddie Murphy. 
Even Eddie Murphy isn't doing a lot of jokes here. He has standout scenes, but his Reggie Hammond is a straight convict for more screen time than he is charming SNL Eddie Murphy. And Nick Nolte... Do you find racial slurs funny? Because then he's hilarious. Well, Blazing Saddles had come out a few years before. Blazing Saddles was... That was winking. Like, they knew what they were doing when they're using the N-word. Here, does not feel comedic. It doesn't feel like there's some kind of motivation behind it except cruelty. Yeah, that is going to be a surprise for any Eddie Murphy fan to come back. Even if you've seen the sequel or certainly anything he made afterwards, Beverly Hills Cop, you could argue that he's made things that weren't comedies, but they always had his levity to it. Here, I do feel like it is, he appears in the movie late and he tamps some of that down and you can sense that he's green at this so that not every scene is one where he gets to steal the spotlight. So yeah, when you talk about sequels to comedies and things, when we get to another 48 hours next week, it's like Lethal Weapon 2 to me. I mean, admittedly, by Lethal Weapon 4, it was a farce of a movie. I don't know that it was a comedy. Yeah, Lethal Weapon 2 is a comedy. (laughs) But the first Lethal Weapon was not a comedy, and the second one became a funny action film. So I think we're much more in the Lethal Weapon vein. Lethal Weapon wanted to be 48 hours. Right, and of course that movie's coming, what, four years from now? Like, this is, it's not the only action movie in town, but I do feel like, you know, the only action movie bigger that year was Rocky Three, if you want to call that an action movie. So, no. <laughs> again, they're just, this was as pretty much as big as this genre got in 1982. They had $80 million. That's big time. And you say that Nick Dolte was sober on set, but I did hear that when he showed up to promote this, of course, he was going to go on guest star on SNL. Like, he got off the plane and, like, was was so trashed, I guess he couldn't perform the night that they were the story i heard was stomach flu but (laughs) yes that's the cover story and then eddie murphy says now i'm the guest star even though he's like a regular player he goes live from new york it's the eddie murphy show yeah the the producer who was not lorne michaels at that time said if we can't have one 48 hour star we'll have another it was the only time A regular cast member hosted the show while being a cast member. A lot of cast members come back to host, and this created a lot of animosity between Eddie and the others who felt like, oh crap, we're on the Eddie Murphy show, and Murphy wouldn't stick around all that much longer. He'd finish out in 84 and quit right before Beverly Hills Cop came out. Yeah, this movie opened so many doors for him. He started cutting comedy albums. He'll have trading places the next year. and Musical albums! Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, party all the time for Eddie in those early days. you got to think that this is where it began. But should it? If it's not a comedy, Arnie, give him the plot, and we'll figure out what happens in 48 hours. When not fighting with his girlfriend Elaine, played by Annette O'Toole, San Francisco cop Jack Cates is on the hunt for cop-killing escaped convict Albert Gans, played by James Remar, and Gans's accomplice Billy Bear, played by Sonny Landham. It's a real big run-on sentence, but Jacob, I included the girlfriend, so there's your personal <laughs> drama not skipped in my plot summary. <laughs> It's so bizarre to see sexy Annette O'Toole in this film. I know her as Martha Kent from Smallville. <laughs> like, it is, it's weird. Yeah, but she was sexy Lana Lang. I guess she played Lana Lang in Superman 3, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gans is going to skip town as soon as he gets the money from a previous heist. But he doesn't know where the money is. One of his accomplices was Reggie Hammond, played by Eddie Murphy. Hammond stashed the cash, but then got arrested for the job. He's served two and a half years of a three-year sentence. 
Another partner in the job was Luther, played by David Patrick Kelly. Luther knows where Hammond put the money, so Gans kidnaps Luther's girl Rosalie, played by Carrie Sherman. Cates goes to Hammond in prison, and Hammond agrees to help Cates find Gans, but Hammond needs to be out on the streets to do it. So Cates gets Hammond released from prison, a 48-hour long release. Of course, the racist cop and the black convict don't get along and even get into a fistfight with each other. Hammond leads Cates to the money, which he'd stored in the trunk of his car in a parking garage, but Luther got there first. They follow Luther and get close to catching Gans a couple of times, but Gans kills Luther and takes the money. Defeated, Cates is about to take Hammond back to prison when he has the idea to once more check the apartment of Billy Bear's girlfriend. There, Hammond and Cates find the criminals. Hammond kills Billy Bear. Gans takes Hammond hostage, but Cates shoots and kills the murderer. The case closed. Cates tells Hammond he can keep the stolen money, and he drives Hammond back to prison to serve the rest of his sentence as credits roll. And as they start, I said Lethal Weapon wants to be this movie. They stole this score, man. They stole it. They should be in jail for three years with Reggie Hammond. They stole it. I mostly agree with you. I feel there's more steel drums in this score, (laughs) but there's still that saxophone. Hot, hot sax and timpanis. Yeah, there was, it had some island feel to it. I wasn't, I'm like, where are we? It took me a long time to realize we're on the West Coast. I'm like, oh, okay. Farmland. It's cows, horses, and a chain gang building a railroad. Didn't know they were doing that in the 80s. That feels retro. But, I mean, it makes sense if you're going to have a breakout scene. This is a way of doing it. We have Billy Bear. I remember him mostly as the Native American from Predator. That's the only thing I know him as. Yeah, I checked the credits to be sure. I'm like, I think that's the guy from Predator. And sure enough, uh, he's referred to as Tonto. There's a lot of racial epithets in this movie. Yeah. But that fight is all just a cover so that they can emerge from their wrestling match with pistols drawn and breaking out of prison. I will say this because I I feel it right from this opening scene. This movie's only like 95 minutes long. And I do feel like at times they just let that camera roll. Like, let's get some extra V footage. We're going to have to pad this out or they had to throw that in later. But I do feel like a lot of these scenes just go on longer, especially if this was a modern movie. This breakout seems to take a very long time, especially. And and I keep waiting. I'm like, okay, Eddie Murphy's going to be one of the criminals in this chain gang. Nope. Like, this is just setting up the plot. And it, it goes on longer than I expected. They cut a lot out of this film. So it's not like they were trying to meet a certain running length. So they had lots of footage. Yeah, they had a lot more than was filmed. Some was even put back in for the TV edit because they had to cut out so much cursing. They had to find other ways to pad the movie out. But this scene, we're introduced to our bad guy, Gans. James Ramar, and he wants his money. So he kills some guy on a park bench because I guess he didn't have the money. And now he's shaking down Luther, who... David Patrick Kelly was also named Luther in The Warriors. And we'll find out that guy on the park bench is part of their gang. I thought he was knocking people off so he could keep all the money for himself. It gets confusing because we'll later learn that some rich salesman had their credit card stolen. I'm like, is that him? No. That's what I thought. Yeah, because, I mean, he's just a rando on a bench. We never see him alive. He's just dead on there, and he stole a credit card so he could hire a couple of sex workers, so I thought that was the guy. And it's not until the police station later, they're like, this is a member of Gantz's gang. And the bullet matches the bullets that were shooting the policemen at the chain gang. 
Here's all you really need to understand. There's a pile of money somewhere. This guy went to jail, and now that he's busted out, he and Billy want their cut, if not the whole thing. And so there are three other people in their gang. One they just shot on a bench. One who has a girlfriend they're going to kidnap and tell her, you know, poor Luther, you've got 48 hours to find that money. And then the person that knows where that money is and can get to it is also in jail. Well, Luther knows. Hammond told Luther where it is. Yeah, that's what makes kind of no sense. I thought that, you know, like if you knew where half a million dollars were and you were a thief. And you telling me there's a parking garage in San Francisco that's not opened on weekends? It was too late that night. I think it was open weekends. It was just not open at 2 a.m. Go on Sunday. More to the point, if you know where half a million dollars is, you steal it and you go away. And you, I mean, you've done it long time before. Like it's been sitting there for three years. The only reason I can take that Luther doesn't take the money is because he's trying to live the straight and narrow life. He doesn't want to be a criminal anymore. Yeah, because he has no problem getting that money. When he has to go get the car, he just drops Reggie's name and they give it to him. It's not like he couldn't get the car at any point in those three years. Well, when we're first are introduced to Luther, he's talking to his girlfriend about how they're saving up to buy a carpet and he wants to just be very economical. And he's like, what do you want me to do? Steal for the money? He, I do think, is trying to not be a criminal anymore, probably because of this girl. I'm doing a lot of projecting here because Mm -hmm. Luther and his girlfriend don't matter. And at the end of this film, can either of you tell me if this girl's alive? No, I don't remember what happens to her. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think any of the female characters matter here. I mean, once we get to our hero, ostensibly our hero, Jack Cates, like they're going to set up that he has this girlfriend and problems and i think that's all just to let us know that jack doesn't get along with other people it's not that they got a relationship that will be hammered out by the end of the film yeah what's so weird i'm waiting for that moment between jack and reggie where reggie dispenses some relationship wisdom like there are moments where they start i thought oh he's gonna get the advice from the the convict of how to have a good relationship with his girlfriend nope that that never happens not in this film women are all goals in this film or hookers i feel like most of the women are hookers in this film yeah is it even like women or is it just sex i mean like they're (laughs) objectified to the point that like every woman in this is just a sex object like annetta tool that's her introduction is as elaine like jack just goes over there to spend the night with her and, and have sex but jack is going to try to work things out in his gruff grumpy i'll yell at you even if you're right kind of way I mean, I don't think he's got a problem. She's the one that's unhappy. He's getting what he needs. (laughs) But she still cares about him. For reasons. Yeah, again, like, let's just stop talking about women in this movie, because there's nothing to say. They are, in fact, ornaments to be kidnapped and used as bartering and sex objects, sex workers. And a shoot. Yeah, kill them if you must. But yes, it's completely about the boys here. It's not the boys and girls aren't back in town, only the boys. (laughs) Correct, yes. Jack is established here as a man who is a loner and is trying to hustle in on a job for two other cops uh, because I guess he's got nothing else to do. He's just like, let me hang out in this hotel while you investigate this car that was rented with stolen credit cards, which is, of course, going to turn out to be Gans and Billy Bear. 
Am I the only one who was really amused by Gans watching that old cartoon right after having sex? What was that? There is so much of that cartoon in this. <laughs> Space Kid, I've never heard of it. It looked kind of like a Bullwinkle-ish thing, but maybe maybe they made it up or maybe it's... I thought they were going to get into these themes like these men. Well, I guess men do ignore women in this film because they don't matter. But like, yeah, there he has hired a sex worker and she's cleaning up and trying to talk to him. And he's just watching this cartoon and I was waiting for that to mean something and i don't think it does if you're hiring a sex worker do you really care about her ambitions well here's the thing like she'll later make a report and i thought they were getting something there with with character where she says he seemed to be more interested in killing the cops than he was in getting in her pants so they're alleging maybe something about his sexuality a point that gets completely dropped but this shootout the two cops he goes and visits one has a receding hairline the cop's name, I'm not even positive it said, Algren is played by Jonathan Banks. He's the lead henchman in Beverly Hills Cop. So I found it very interesting to find that actor would be in this as a cop, in that as a criminal, carry over with Eddie Murphy. It's kind of a shame we're not doing Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, we thought we were building to coming to America. We're still going to cover that when it comes out in March. But we are holding off on Beverly Hills Cop because allegedly a fourth one is being made at Netflix for some time in the future. So, yeah, I would be curious to compare this to Beverly Hills Cop because I haven't seen that movie since the 80s. I haven't seen the movie in a couple of years, but I can recite every line and know every actor on site if I see them from that period as Jonathan Banks here is. I mean, the what he's wearing, it looks like he walked off the set of Beverly Hills Cop or walked onto the set of Beverly Hills Cop wearing these. Well, help me out because my memory is Beverly Hills Cop has moments like this shootout we're going to get in the hotel, but has a lot more laugh moments. A lot, a lot of scenes that are just interstitial there because they're comedy sketches, right? Like it, you would call that movie a comedy you wouldn't call this movie a comedy, yes? I'd call that an action comedy, whereas this, I'd call an action. Okay. Yeah, there's nothing funny about this shootout scene. It's just a straight shootout. And again, I think it goes a little bit too long. You know, the, the two cops go upstairs and gunfire breaks out. One of them gets shot. And then Nick Nolte's character, Jack, goes upstairs and he doesn't find anyone. Then he goes downstairs. And there's a lot of backtracking in this film. Like, it starts here. Like, You're kind of right. Like That's it, why I feel like this is padded. Like, they're going to go to one hotel, then have to go back there at the very end. Like, it's it's not great action. It's also weird because, yes, we've been spoiled by the future movies where they hire martial artists and people that are going to get in stunt rigs and spend five days, you know, hanging off the side of a truck so they can film this amazing stunt. And this movie is about people taking stairs. It really is very <laughs> almost, I would say, the expectation you would have for a cop TV show. Paramount thought this went too far demanded he'll cut it he again refused too far how because a cop gets shot too much violence too much blood i think the blood in this movie looks like paint balls i mean i really it's like a weird pastel but paramount said you're never going to work for paramount again that's an important thing to absorb in 1982 this movie would be shockingly violent mm-hmm Wow, they thought this was shocking violence. Like, yeah, this violence never shocks me, especially with the language it's got to compete with. Again, my reference is this feels like something that would be on television. Yes. <laughs> Obviously not for language reasons, but in terms of anything else, I would expect it to be an episode of, 
Starsky and Hutch. Having watched a lot of Hunter, Remington Steel, Moonlighting, you would never get blood on a shirt. You'd see, like, a, a black hole on a shirt. This is bloody when that first cop, who has no name, gets shot. There's, like, an ejaculation of blood coming out of his chest. Okay, so we are desensitized, is what you're telling me. I really, really, really have seen a lot of screen violence, and just stuff just washes over me. I don't even think if you've seen a lot of screen violence, this is going to be shocking. Like, it's just different standards today, I guess. And here we get a moral quandary at the bottom of the stairs that is going to replay later in the film. Gans has a gun focused on Algren. Algren was shot but didn't die. He's coming down the stairs. Gans is saying, Jack, give me your gun or I'm going to shoot Algren. Algren's like, don't you do it, Jack, because, again, as I've said on this show many times, cops are trained never give your gun to somebody. Oh, that's bad news if you lose your gun as a cop. And Jack gives him his gun and Gans... Kills Algren anyway, using Jack's gun. Yeah, I guess it would mean more if, like, they were partners. Like, if you had built up the idea that these were partners, now he doesn't have a partner. And Well, that's what's so weird is, uh, to me, Jack is the loner. He doesn't have a partner. He's going to drive that beat-up car. He's kind of tagging along with these two other cops into this apartment building. But then he has enough feels for these other cops to give up the gun. Why have that other guy? Why have Van Zant? Why not just make him and Algren working this job? this formula wasn't refined yet that exact thing would happen later on is the cop's partner would be the one to die early on right but in this case yeah they had a couple of cops working a case and jack just was floating around and happened to be there and now it's not like he has a personal vendetta against them for killing good friends but the whole force goes all out when you're after a cop killer it's vengeance Yeah, you do have this scene with the chief, and I don't know, maybe this is the origination of this trope, but it feels like a parody. It is, but it feels like a parody because Frank McRae, who plays the captain here, he also played the captain in Loaded Weapon 1 and Last Action Hero, both of which were parodies of these. That's right. I thought he was the Last Action Hero, which was, yeah, which he does this same thing. Like, I guess that's why they hired him. It It is so funny. Again, you got to have that racial tension. So it's a black chief and he's just screaming. I, I guess that's what chiefs do. I'm not a cop. I don't know. But like, they're always just screaming. And it's to me, it's just funny because it feels so cliche. McNulty is a hot dog. He just kept screaming he's a hot dog. I don't know what that (laughs) meant, but I was hungry. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but he says, like, we can't make it look like we're in the revenge business. Like, so go after these guys, but... But what? Like, again, I feel like if this is a prototype, it's obvious because they're missing a lot of the key little pieces you you tag onto there. Like, this doesn't feel like a revenge police flick for a couple cops getting shot, but they kind of set, like, why would you put Jack on the case if you don't want it to feel like revenge? Like, this feels like a loose cannon. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like it should have been written by three different screenwriters, too. Or, or were they under doing what the other ones were setting up? But I feel like some of this stuff is is basic and they're not they're not getting it. I think some of this is it's almost impossible to follow the captain's entire diatribe. But he says things that's like because he is a hot dog and hot dog has been working real well for him. He's got to do things his own way. But if you don't nail this guy and make us all look good, you're going down. So I think the captain's like ready to fire him. 
Yeah, I, I needed this explained more. I don't know why, if this is such an important case to crack, why you'd put Jack in charge, unless you want to get rid of him for some reason. I don't even spend a second thinking about it. This is a cop movie. The formula <laughs> is the chief is always angry about something. And so, Jack, the deduction is who's the one member of the gang that I can get to if one of them has been shot. And they don't know about Luther yet. They do know about Reggie. Reggie is Eddie Murphy, and we've been wanting to get to him. This movie waits 24 minutes. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a long time to wait for your star attraction. But again, it speaks to the fact that they didn't know what they had. And he is second build. It's weird that they keep the second build player this far back. I almost wondered if it would be like and Eddie Murphy, or if Eddie Murphy might be third build or something under Remar. But no, here he is singing, Roxanne! I always knew Eddie Murphy did this bit, but I never knew it was from 48 Hours that he covered the police. I didn't know if the joke was, because he's doing it real high-pitched, which I, Sting sings it, I guess, kind of high-pitched, but I didn't know if the joke was supposed to be you thought a girl was singing it, or he's just singing it really bad. I think it's supposed to be he's singing it really bad. And it's the police. And it's about a hooker, which is the theme of this film. And part of it is that he's in jail. We think that he should be serving time, but he looks like he's on vacation. He's in a lounge chair wearing sunglasses, cranking his Walkman. You know, he looks like he's perfectly fine here. Protect it. I thought they were telling us like he was a really high crime lord or something. You know, he was able to get all this nice stuff in the Walkman and this lounge chair because he was some respected gang leader on the outside but no that is not the case he just he just got stuff for some reason like i guess that's his thing like we'll find out he has a real nice suit and he just likes luxurious stuff yeah i think it's he's just a fast talker deal maker gets what he wants and he does not seem to have any problem with prison i mean he's arrested we're gonna find out gans turned him in gans betrayed reggie so that reggie would go down and the rest of them could hopefully escape and so reggie though only got sentenced to three years for stealing half a million dollars from whoever did he even go to jail for stealing the money because they make it a point that he stole the money from someone that it doesn't matter like people don't chase you for stealing money from who he stole it from not only that gan sold him out but he also went to jail like a different jail serving harder time it looks like <laughs> yeah gans was put in jail for something else he had many more years to go after reggie got out yeah reggie is like just playing it good he's like i got six more months i don't want to screw that up i i want to get out of here and so i don't know does this happen is this uh, an invention of screenwriters or are there cases where cops can check out like a loaning library? I need this criminal for two days. I mean, I'm sure it happens. I don't know if it's on the books, though. It, it doesn't feel like something that's legal. I know that minor criminals do get weekend passes just due to prison overcrowding and things. Remember that? That was like a big deal that prisoners could leave and prison was like a school. They just leave on Friday and come back on Monday and it was kind of the honor system and so many of them never return. I will put it out there that I know very little about our prison system other than what I read in newspapers. So all of this, I'm just going to go with it. But to me, this feels more in supporting of the idea of comedy. I'm seeing Eddie Murphy in this way, and he's getting to uh, a pass to go out and step out in the street. It feels like that's not an action movie. That is uh, a fish-out-of-water story. 
Yeah, you're right, because with this intro with him singing the police, and then it just feels like a gimmick. 48 hours. You got 48 hours to be back on the outside, to be a free man, and to bring you back. That just feels like a comedic premise there. It doesn't feel like something for a hard action film or a drama. I guess action films, they all have gimmicks, too. Like Die Hard, you're stuck in a building, but, oh, you're going to get it go on the outside for two days. Like, yeah, it does make it feel more like a comedy to me. Yeah, the fact that they don't need reggie on the outside for this he doesn't need to make a visual identification they know who gans is they know what gans looks like reggie's just kind of blackmailing him i want to be out of here for a weekend so i'm only going to help you if you let me come along but he's not much help because the only thing he can offer them is luther's apartment but they don't know what he can offer when they take him out he's like i can help you find gans but you got to get me out of here but I mean, again, it's all like everything with this character. It's all talk, right? Like there's nothing there. He does know the address where Luther is. And when they grab him, Luther doesn't know or isn't saying anymore about where the money is or where Gans is. And part of that is because he has a girlfriend, wife, partner that he's trying to keep alive. It is one of Eddie Murphy's first real funny moments is Nolte doesn't trust him, calls him convict, calls him watermelon, calls him the N-word. And so it's one of the old tropes that the cop goes in and the non-cop is told to wait in the car, handcuffs Reggie to the steering wheel, Luther's getting away, Eddie just hits him with the car door, and it's like, oh, that really looked like that hurt. It does feel like this is Eddie Murphy testing out material I've seen him do in many other films. Yeah, it doesn't, it's proto Eddie Murphy, just like maybe this is a proto buddy cop film. Yeah, I feel like, oh, he did do some of this stuff in Golden Child. Again, that's my reference. I know it's a silly one. It's, It's a stupid movie, but like that's the one that I watch the most. So it feels in a lot of ways like I'm seeing somebody work through how to apply their skill to the movies. This is how I'm going to do it, and we're watching the dress rehearsal. Yeah, do we ever get the Eddie Murphy laugh in this one? Like, I kept waiting for that. Yes. Much later in the film, you get the... Okay. It's at the very end. Yeah, most of the time he's like... That's what I thought. Like, it, it. yeah, if it isn't here, it was very late. But yeah, there's comedy here. It's just maybe we don't think this stuff is funny anymore. I mean, is Watermelon a joke? Yeah, here's the thing. Like, I don't know if you guys ever saw DC Cap starring Mr. T. Oh, I love that movie. Like, I watched that about a year ago, like, because I had fond memories of it as a kid. <laughs> and oh boy, that has some shocking, like, I'm, I must have seen it on TV. Like, there's, I can't believe my parents would have let me watch that. Like, I guess that's, things were just different. That's what we chalk it up to. Like, you, people were just more free throwing those words around. You could say the N-word on network television. The Jeffersons said the N-word in one episode that I remember very specifically. Again, to use it as derogatory, like, these are not buddies. Jack and Reggie do not like each other. Like, it's clearly racism. But there are times where, like, the patter feels like, okay, this is the comedy bit. Reggie wants to go somewhere with mandolins to eat dinner, and he gets a Zagnut out of a vending <laughs> machine. I mean, they're they're trying to do bits... So when they mix this stuff in here, I don't know whether it's just a hard R laugh line or whether people just were not phased by this kind of talk. I don't know whether times have changed, political correctness being what it is now. Oh, definitely times have changed. Yeah, times have changed. And I don't think that this is playful banter. 
this entire movie is basically a dick measuring contest between Nolte and Murphy. Which one is dominant in the situation? And Nolte being the cop and Hammond being the convict, he obviously thinks he's dominant. He owns Reggie because he's the one who checked him out of prison. But Reggie's going to push back on that at every chance. And so I think Nolte uses these terms like watermelon and N-word to put him down, to make him feel weak. Yeah, I definitely agree. Because again, you called out Blazing Saddles. I think that was making commentary on the racism inherent in the Western genre that was popular at the time. Here, because they set up this thing, it's clearly, again, an odd couple film. I don't want to say buddy cop because they're not both cops, but it is an odd couple and it's black and white and, and cop and criminal. And Nolte definitely feels like he is superior because he is this cop and he's dealing with a criminal. But the way he, just, he chooses to voice that, it, it's all based on Murphy's race. And so it just feels mean-spirited. But when you say odd couple, I do have to laugh because Nolte's the slob, right? He's just a complete disheveled (laughs) mess. And when they let Reggie out of prison, he has a $900 Armani suit waiting for him that he's going to wear the whole movie. I mean, he's fastidious. And Yeah, I thought that was going to play up to something like Maybe that was supposed to be the joke that even though he's being called the N-word, he's the one that does have more class than Nolte. But I don't see Nolte learning any class by the end of this film. You definitely would structure this where they are better people for having gone through this 48 hours together. Yeah, I don't get that sense. (laughs) And I don't see that any of these screenwriters got a good handle on how to dramatize that. I think that that gets missed. There's a scene at the end. There's a scene at the end where Nolte somewhat atones and specifically apologizes for saying watermelon and the n-word and things yeah he apologized but again does he learn a lesson is he able to get back together with annette o'toole at the end of this film because he learned some class from reggie like again i don't know what happens to o'toole at the end of this film i think what reggie said is you know some of that was you being a jerk cop but some of that came from someplace else. And Jack was like, yeah, you're right. Here, I'll make it up to you. Go bang that woman. <laughs> so it's I do think that they had it in there where this was Nolte coming to terms and realizing some of his racism isn't exactly correct. Now, it's underplayed, but it's there. Right. And, I, and reciprocally, yeah, Reggie is on a, quote, trim hunt here at the beginning and keeps getting stomped on, eventually, yes, his frenemy, he's going to allow him to get laid before he goes back to jail. So there is, there's some of that, but I guess I would just argue I would expect more personal growth throughout the movie. And it's kind of, you know, with Eddie Murphy, I knew what to expect. I'm a little disappointed in Nick Nolte in this movie. I thought, dramatically speaking, he is a good actor, He isn't seeming to do a lot here. He's flustered and he's sloppy and he's cranky, but I don't feel like he's a character. The first big scene where we get them together, you know, after this whole Luther thing, is they go into this redneck country bar. I get it's the 1980s. I I don't know if those would still exist in San Francisco. San Francisco. I just want to (laughs) underline the fact that San Francisco... In the Mission District, which, again, maybe the Mission District was different in the 80s. It was not a place you wanted to hang out in the 90s. I know that. You're not hanging Confederate flags in the Mission District. No. Yeah. This, <laughs> All of this is just a fanciful way. You mentioned Blazing Saddles earlier. This is totally like, how do we do the scene where the black sheriff is going to shock the white townspeople? Here it is. 
And it is the best scene, though, because of that. Like, yeah, it's a knockoff of that Blazing Saddle scene, but it is the best part. Like, it's the closest we get to the Eddie Murphy I know. Yeah, this is the best scene. This is the star-making scene. This is the Eddie we're going to see in movies for 10 years or more after this point, you know? This is Axel Foley coming to life right there. It's all attitude and bullshit is what Jack tells him going in. And Reggie says, I don't even need a gun. You're right. It's attitude and bullshit. And he's going to take charge of this entire Western bar and get three guys up against a post and get some information on Gant. Yeah, he's smashing mirrors, throwing glasses. You people are rednecks. That means I'm enjoying this shit. And I'm enjoying it at this moment. I was trying to think about what it would be in 1982 to see this on the big screen, too. We had already had two decades prior... Sidney Poitier do this in the heat of the night. But of course, Sidney's always got the dignity. He would never use the N-word. I mean, I know Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is a comedy, but he's not really the funny one in that movie. So I feel like what Eddie Murphy is doing is a marriage between Sidney Poitier, black leading man, and Richard Pryor, the foul-mouthed comedian. Like, he's taken two distinct black archetypes and marry them into something very new. It would feel very fresh to see this guy on screen in this way. And I think that's part of what Paramount didn't like, is they thought, and this is Walter Hill's words, they thought the only funny black was Richard Pryor. I mean, you if you were going to be a black person and funny, you had to be Richard Pryor. That's the only one that can do comedy. Well, no. I mean, you had to rip off Richard Pryor. You had to be a Richard Pryor imitator. Oh, okay. I see. And this is Eddie Murphy doing himself, doing a version of his SNL stuff. And so Paramount didn't find this funny. Whereas Walter Hill's like, I need to edit this scene really fast because Eddie's going to be jacking up his price after this. Right. And again, he is definitely stealing the movie away from Nick Nolte. My struggle with this film is that it's not an equal pairing. Like, you want someone that is just as strong on the other side. I guess there's always the Danny Glover, right? There's always one star that's a higher wattage than the other. But I feel like Nick Nolte is out of his element. Like, he thought he knew the movie he signed up for, but in the end, it's the Eddie Murphy show. And here's my problem. It's not the Eddie Murphy show. After this scene, it kind of gets dragged down again into this action film. Like, I never feel like Eddie Murphy gets another scene like this one. Yeah, agreed he doesn't. And and the movie would be better served if they had tailored the whole thing to be like this, right? I mean, that's the mistake of this movie is they didn't make every scene on this comedic level. But they didn't even know they were going to have Eddie Murphy when they were writing this oh hindsight 2020 i'm not i of course they didn't know but i'm just saying in retrospect boy this movie would be a whole lot more entertaining and probably make more money if they had given it if they had designed it to be the eddie murphy star vehicle that it's only sometimes pulling off yeah they went back they fixed that and it's called beverly hills cop Right. Okay. Again, if I saw that, you know, next week, that would be helpful. Like, I, I, I kind of would love to see the tinkering that would go on and how do we take this hit and make it even better? That's how, that's what you're telling me Beverly Hills Cop is. Yes. At Beverly Hills Cop is somebody seeing this and saying, yeah, and keep in mind, Beverly Hills Cop was written for Sylvester Stallone, so there was some rewriting going on. But sure, again. We'll talk about that someday, I hope. I'm, I'm sure we will when that fourth Beverly Hills Cop movie rolls along. But in the meantime, you're right. We're now back sort of in a substandard cop movie in which they're investigating old girlfriends who live above Chinese jewelry stores. And, hey, there's Tasha Yar. 
Yeah, Denise Crosby. I was surprised to see her swinging a bat here. I'm confused. I know it's San Francisco, and these are two women living together. Are we to understand that they are lesbians? I know they're called a derogatory term for lesbians later. On the set, they were referred to as the two dykes. Okay. Again, Eddie Murphy will get in trouble pretty soon into his career with the language and statements he makes about gay people. But this movie seems to hold back on that. He's here in San Francisco and he doesn't make San Francisco gay jokes. Another thing is, though, these are the girlfriends of Gans and Sonny Bay. Yeah, what does that mean, though? Like Again, we've talked about women in this film. Like It means they stop by to fuck them every once in a while. I thought one of them, Casey, was... Billy Beer's old girlfriend, and now she's with a woman. So I think that she's just bisexual. Yeah, except later on, we're going to see Tasha Yar with Gans. Yeah, I think they were sleeping. Was she really? And again, his sexuality is under a question mark. So that's why Denise Crosby's running around naked is because she was doing Gans. Okay. Again, it's incidental. This movie is not concerned about what supporting characters are as characters. That's just... They're, they're, they don't care. It's not that kind of movie. We shouldn't try to dig any deeper than the screenwriters have. Doesn't this feel like it's supposed to be comedic? Like Jack and Reggie enter and these two women, they're like, we don't believe you're a real cop. Like the, the whole time, like no one ever believes Jack is a cop and he's always got to pull out that badge to prove it. And I don't know. I feel like this there should be some kind of commentary or joke going on, but it's not there. It, it just it feels like something's there, but it's all missing throughout this film yeah is it the idea that women got the upper hand on this tough guy i'm not sure what the joke is but i agree with you yeah if that was a joke that happened to jack throughout the film that would be funny but it's just it's a one-time thing here i agree with you it does feel like they they a different director that's what i'm wondering and no slight against walter hill because i like some of his movies but I wonder if you had gotten someone that had been more versed in you know, working with Saturday Night Live players, if this would just be more successful in these moments. It probably would, but he was making an action film, too. Again, this is completely limited by the intent. There was a conversation of, do we hire somebody for, from SNL for this action film? And I saw an interview. Entertainment Tonight went and talked to Eddie Murphy, and they're like, so was this a big risk for you where this isn't a comedy? He's like, yeah, I didn't get to do my bits. I had I had to play it serious and I hope that I didn't suck, but I always have SNL. <laughs> well, here's what I heard he said. And you can kind of see it after I read this. It was like, let me go back and look and make sure like in that scene we previously saw in the redneck bar. He does get moments where he's swinging punches and, and knocking people over and getting thrown around. He said he studied Bruce Lee, at least facially speaking. I don't think he does any karate moves, but he did try to channel some of Lee's intimidating, I don't know what you call it, his fighter face in trying to scare some of the bigger guys. I never thought of Enter the Dragon during this. (laughs) I know he was a huge Bruce Lee fan growing up. In none of my research did I read he was trying to be Bruce Lee in the scene, though. Yeah, it, I don't think he pulls it off, but it, it, I, occasionally I saw on his face maybe a little bit. I mean, I don't want to discredit Bruce Lee with 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 a comparison, but I, I'll just leave it at this. I think Eddie Murphy still has a long way to go to feel comfortable as an action star. He is most comfortable, and they have best positioned him as the guy making the funny spur-of-the-moment comment that, that gets him out of trouble. But then we really get the character moment between 
Nolte and Murphy, where it feels like it comes a little bit out of nowhere for me that Nolte Jack is just like, all right, takes his badge off, takes his gun out. We're just going to punch each other. Was this the inspiration for They Live? Because this scene, (laughs) it's not as long as They Live, but it goes on a long time. It is funny to see who has the upper hand. Because early on, Reggie is just kicking Jack's ass. But then Jack gets a few hits in and stuns Reggie. And Reggie's taking a lot of abuse. The point is, Reggie is not going to be a winner in the fight against Nick Nolte, but he doesn't go down either. Like he's still standing when the other cops roll up and and see Nolte, you know, punching him repeatedly. So the point is they're equally matched and they're equally bloodied by this exchange and humbled. I suppose when two alpha males are, are getting aggressive, you let them beat it out of each other. And now they can finally get down and crack this case. This is where Reggie's going to finally say, where the money is, what it was all about. There's not a whole lot to the story, but whatever was being withheld from Jack is now being told. Yeah, because Reggie does say, if you beat me, I'll tell you everything I know. He's hinted that he knows more than he's letting on. And so basically they could have just, yeah, spent, rather than run around. <laughs> they could have just napped in front of this garage the whole time. <laughs> we would have missed the best scene in the movie with the rednecks. <laughs> but uh, yes, because it, it wanted to keep us moving, it would have been a very fun film to just have a stakeout at a parking garage. So instead, yeah, we we get this moment now that they're frenemies at this point, a little bit closer, a little bit more bloodied, and uh, watching Luther, who has somehow been released. They took him downtown to be arrested, but here he is picking up the Porsche three years later. Yeah, they they do explain it away, the judicial system, lawyers, you know. They do give lip service to why Luther's out on the street. And... You know, because I'm an Eddie Murphy fan and he mostly makes comedies, I'm just hanging on to lines like, Jack, tell me a story. I mean, that one was another Eddie moment in a movie that doesn't have a lot of Eddie moments. Yeah, I agree. He is Again, to me, they feel like they're there because I guess Eddie Murphy couldn't be. It would be an interesting thing if he had come to this and said, I'm not going to do any of my comedy. Like... I just think that Eddie Murphy exudes comedy. And so what we're seeing is it on low boil. Like we're seeing Eddie Murphy is funny in almost every scene, but he's not allowed to shine. And this is where the plot gets fuzzy. We're in the last half hour of the film. Luther's got the car and there's a lot of chases here. Jacob, if you want to talk about, you know, the length of the film, it's funny to me how long this chase is through the BART system. Oh, this second half, this is where the film really drags for me, is the second half. It was just, yeah, let's run through subways. Yeah, I'm not sure what really, again, it was supposed to be an exchange. Billy Bear and Gans do have the girl. They're about to make the swap for the money, and it doesn't happen. But Gans does notice jack there but before jack can do anything just regular bart station cops pull guns yeah nothing really happens well this is a big moment this is where reggie splits up reggie is no longer bound either physically or even in proximity to jack jack's going after gans reggie's going after luther and the money at this point reggie could just be an escaped convict presumably for years you are correct but i don't feel like this 
translates as a big moment. Like it just means he ends up going to Romans and Fillmore. Yeah, he's going to go to the Black Club instead of the Redneck Club. We have this really bizarre montage where Nick Nolte is spinning a whole song driving over to the club as if like something were about to happen. And it's just so that they can have some musical filler. Hey, the bus boys, the boys are back in town was a big part of this movie. Was it? The it was you know they were really wanting to promote that as the hit single from the movie. Oh yeah, no no they I get it like Walter Hill music video director. I do feel like that at times like let's just show this band play the song. Yeah, it's a strange extension of a moment that's totally insignificant. But you're right, the significance is that we have a character that could just fly the coop, but still feels compelled to get Gans. That there is. Something that Reggie wants to see happen, it wouldn't be enough to just go on the lam. Yeah, and in between all this, we get Elaine coming back. She's going to call Jack, who's just sitting at the station like he's just given up. And Kehoe, this other cop. The, the guy who the, the same year would be a replicant in Blade Runner. Brian James. Yes, the one that does not have the physique that you would think of as like a super cool android. Yeah, he ha- he knows where Reggie is and is just playing a joke and not telling him, oh, the number's on my desk somewhere. Meanwhile, Lane's like sitting on hold, just getting more and more upset. And again, she just gets hung up on. Doesn't matter. Do we ever see her again after this? Nope. That is her final moment. And again, like I would just presume that the the point is that the, his his relationship with women aren't going to last, but we will see this character finally grow to trust a new kind of partner, a, a criminal partner. Do we know why Jack doesn't have a partner? Like, that's always a day, either that you talked about it earlier with the shoot at the hotel. Either their partner dies. He's a or, hot dog, Jacob. He's a hot dog and he's out there hot dogging. Yeah. His dad didn't die as a cop. You know, Will Smith did that, I think. But no, he, OK, he's just a hot dog. There is a speech later on where he's like, Reggie is more brave than any partner I've ever had. So he's had partners. I think he's a little difficult to work with. Yeah, we have the one scene of him and other cops. Uh, he got into a fist fight, and that's because they accuse him of always him always blaming other people and and not you know working well. I mean, again, that's his that's his growth. That's the thing he needs to learn by the end of this movie. I guess. I mean, what we see here when they're at the club together is that the shoe is on the other foot. Now the white guy's experiencing some subtle racism when he tries to order a drink. And Eddie Murphy is hitting on women. When Jack gets there, Reggie's got a girl. Apparently the line, I need to get some trim, works at the club. I mean, she's like, at least you could ask me nicely, but she's still down. Like, he doesn't have money for a hotel room across the street, but she's like willing to go. And I I guess that's Jack's growth. He gives him some money so he can finally get that trim he's wanted during these 48 hours. And Reggie's growth is that he doesn't take it. He sees Luther coming out and puts job above the woman. I almost said something really insensitive there. I thought that was his whole plan was he because we were told that Luther is in this hotel across the street. And so that he was going to go and try to get the money on his own and make a run for it. I didn't see it as him just trying to get some trim. That that was a cover. No, I really thought he wanted some trim. All he's talked about since getting out of prison is wanting some trim. <laughs> I, I know he really wants it, but 500000 I'll take the 500000 That's because we're old. If you were 21, you'd take the trim. Mm, I would have taken the 500000 You could buy a lot of trim for that. Just so people know, trim is an 80s slang for... It's not a very nice one for vagina. 
Go to your Urban Dictionary, people. And then we get this scene that I remember being much bigger than it actually is. The one thing I remembered about my original viewing of 48 Hours was it had this incredible bus chase where the bad guys had taken over. I remember the whole thing getting shot up and running through traffic. I might have confused this with the Clint Eastwood movie The Gauntlet or other movies that involve a bus. I interpolated it with other, maybe the French Connection, other 70s, early 80s period movies. It is not as dramatic as, as I uh, made it in my mind. I, I'm just so confused at this point because obviously, the, well, they probably shot the bus driver, Billy Bear and Gantz, but like there's a bus that's been stolen. Like San Francisco, what is up with your police? Like it, it feels like they should be on top of this. Gans gets his money back but shoots Luther anyway because Gans is a psychopath. This girl that Luther did it all for, we never see her again. Did Gans shoot her? Did Gans let her go? Yeah, they just ditched this bus, we're told. So who knows? Maybe she stayed on the bus. This is my point about women in this movie. We don't even care enough to give you a, an answer about them. Who's thinking about the women? But she's the one Luther did it all for. I mean, this woman of all women. Yeah, I think in the original script, this is the woman with the dynamite on her head. I want to know if she lived. <laughs> yeah, I, again, something got strategically not thought about throughout this film, and it had to do with any female character. And it is frustrating. And it is something that wouldn't happen now. I mean, it's, it's something we can definitely mark down as of its era. No matter how, like, dude-centric any movie made today is, we would not have women this ornamental. We would at least know what happened to her and if she lived or died. Some of the stuff that was cut was Annette O'Toole stuff. So there was more there to help flesh that out. And as it is, I guess it just means that Jack cares about something or that every single character in this movie wants trim. I mean, that might just be the point of it, is that's what Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy can really relate on is... We both want a woman that we can utilize. Yeah, I, I don't want more Annette O'Toole. I can, t I can honestly tell you that wouldn't help me like Nick Nolte more. I don't like Nick Nolte in this movie because Nick Nolte hasn't come up with something interesting about his police detective. There's usually something redeemable about them that you're like, oh, okay, this is why they're that way. I just, I never get that feeling with Jack here. Let's just say though, 1982, there's, something to be said about just being cool and i think we've got two different kinds of cool here there's the dirty hairy kind of i'm a bad cop but i get the job done nick nolte and then there's the slick fast talking reggie hammond and i think that coolness as paper thin and lame as it is can connect an audience to root for characters even without character development. What's cool about Jack, though? He's not a great shooter, not a great fighter. Like, I haven't seen any great action scenes with them, so I don't think he's cool that way. He, he's kind of a racist and a bigot and just a mean guy. I don't find that cool. If they had gotten their original choice, Clint Eastwood, then you would have had that star power. You get Nick Nolte, and he's... I'm sorry, but you don't just get to walk on and say, hey, everyone, I'm Nick Nolte. You gotta, you gotta earn it, right? He isn't Harrison Ford. He hasn't been in other things that make me love him for it i think his gruffness i think his fuck it all attitude could come across again at the time when dirty harry was a big thing could come across as heroic whereas today we look at it differently 
Well, he's not solving problems because he's getting yelled at by the chief again. Got to get back to that. I mean, uh, <laughs> that chief, I can't understand half of what he says. I hope this actor <laughs> went on to work with Nolan. It, but we get the moment where Jack stands up for Reggie against the chief and, hey, I'm going to take you back to prison. But first, let's just backtrack. Let's go back to this hotel. Let's go back to these bars before we go to prison because they find out the bus was ditched in Chinatown and that's where Billy Bear's girlfriend was. Yeah, it's worth pointing out the 48 hours are up. Yep. So, like, it, there's no reason for Jack not to go and take this guy back. But Reggie, for some reason, because he's he's great with women, he knows all about trim. He knows that these bad guys have gone back to their women. And therefore, Jack's going to trust that hunch and give us this random climax. Well, part of it is Reggie doesn't think that they'll really be there. He thinks it's thin. And Jack's like, I could just take you back to prison. And he's like, oh, Chinatown. Let's go to Chinatown. I mean, anything to prolong his freedom. But he's right. And again, it's, you know, for reasons, because it just makes it easy to now have the climax here. And with two bad guys, it means that there's someone for each of our heroes to take on. Reggie gets the Native American. Because he brought a gun to a knife fight, so he wins. I do like Eddie Murphy's acting here. It's the one moment where I feel Eddie is acting is he's standing there and he doesn't want to shoot Billy Bear. His hand is trembling with the gun in it. He does not want to kill Billy Bear, but Billy Bear is coming at him with the knife much like his character's death in Predator, where he just stands there stupidly as the Predator kills him. He walks forward. I don't know if he thinks Reggie doesn't have it in him to shoot, but he walks right into the gunfire. Yeah, I mean, the guy's physically imposing, so I think that that was, that was some of it. But yeah, it was a drawn-out dramatic moment that lets us know that Reggie, up to this point, was not a killer. I mean, he's in jail for committing robberies and snitching and what have you but he has not killed anyone so this may be the first time he's ever done that and it feels like it because of the way murphy plays it but we then end with a replay of the opening scene gans has a hostage that jack cares about someone jack has worked with gans is using hammond as a human shield and this time i like how nolte plays this he just walks with such confidence there's no hesitation there's no fucking around. He walks in like the Terminator. Oh, he just walks up and shoots him. Yeah, I love that confidence. He's like, you are not going to fucking do this to me again. I'm going to walk up. And Jacob, you said you've never seen him be a good shot. He shoots Gans over Eddie's shoulder. And that's a hell of a shot to make with a pistol. I Yeah, but again, in, in these kind of movies, you establish then that Jack is like a bad shot or something to set up that tension. Like, yeah, you got that little hostage scene at the beginning that's kind of similar, but that cop didn't have a gun to his head from Gans. Gans was pointing a gun at the guy and sure. going to shoot him. I, I think this is the equivalency. But Jack wasn't going to hit that cop if he shot back. I get what you're saying earlier about coolness being cachet. I wish Jack were as cool in the rest of the movie as he is in this moment. He does have a really good, like, mean face when he's walking through the neon and the smoke and all of that. But he's not playing the same character I saw in any previous scene. Yeah, it does feel like he's got a determination to him. And I wasn't sure where it came from, but it was like a cool, heroic cop ending. 
I wish he had done this the whole movie. It might have given Murphy something to play off with more as well. He would have less, looked less like a redneck racist and more just like a, a hard-ass, a hard-boiled detective. Well, Murphy had something else to play with. That lady from the club, Jack takes Reggie over to, I guess, her apartment. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, this woman, Candy, she's going to wait six months for him to get out. She's really got low standards. I mean, like, I've got no money. I just got out of prison. Okay. He's got that Armani suit, though. Yeah, I mean, he's got the suit. He knows that works for him. And a Porsche. Yeah. There's a story there, right? How he got the Porsche. Maybe we'll get it in the sequel. But this is the big moment for Jack. This is where we've learned he's changed, right? Because he's not going to take the money. He's going to hold it for Reggie. You know, maybe I'll I'll ask for a loan for a new car because that car he's got is pretty uh, beat up. But he's not going to run with the money and, and screw Reggie over. So I guess that's the big character moment. I was shocked. That's a bad cop thing to do. I mean, I have not seen Nick Nolte run afoul of the law until that scene. Yeah, but they again, they pad this by saying this was stolen from people that the law would never look for this money. So I'm guessing it was stolen from a drug dealer or another criminal, something like that. Who's paying attention to the plot at this point? Again, they're friends. It's all about, like, they've worked it out. They're now buds, and in six months, who knows? Maybe they'll work another case together, or maybe Reggie will commit another crime, and and next time Jack will have to investigate him. Well, that's for next week. Until then, Jacob Stewart, did you have an enjoyable 48 hours? Jacob. This one was a real surprise to me because I've been told it's it's some kind of classic. It's Eddie Murphy, so I'm expected to laugh a lot. And I didn't laugh a whole lot outside of that redneck bar scene. And I wouldn't consider this a classic. Like, sure, it maybe it's a prototype for Lethal Weapon, but there were these kind of films before. The year before this one, Nighthawks came out. Have you seen that with Sylvester Stallone teaming up with Billy D. Williams to go after Rucker Hauer? Yeah. Th- there were films like that. And, and so maybe standards were just different. When this came out in the early 80s, like what counted for or funny or, or for action? I don't know for me. And again, it doesn't have to be real tight, especially if it's a comedy. It doesn't have to be tight. I look at Blues Brothers, which I love. Like there's no plot to that. We're just going to drive around and crash cars and sing the blues for two hours. Like that's all that film is. And I love it. Like I, I can meet a film on that level. Like if it's just outrageous and funny or just great action yeah who who cares about this plot who cares what happens to a netto tool like i'm not gonna ask you those questions but this one i i don't feel like has that kind of chaotic energy where I, i'm just going with the vibe of it i am getting bogged down with the story and trying to figure out motivations and why do we keep oh let's go back to this bar and let's go back like we can't even track a bus like we got to be told like oh yeah that crashed in chinatown later on like it just seems like bad cop work which which is always a problem for me go back to those lethal weapon reviews like uh, it's shocking that that police work in those films like not great so for me it's not a horrible film it's pretty mediocre it's pretty like what i would consider standard for just a, a regular old cop action film like Nighthawks. Like it, that's just not my genre. Like they're, they're fine. I guess I know people really like that stuff. And if you're one of those people, you'll probably enjoy this, but to be told that this is like a, a, a classic and you know, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy feels very uncomfortable for most of this film. Like he, it just, I don't know if this is my first time seeing him. I, I don't think I would expect him to go on to any other films. Like he's got a couple good scenes and that's it. So for me, th- this was pretty disappointing. I, w- I was shocked that this was such a huge hit because again, maybe it's changing times and I'm not even getting bogged down with the, the racial language and all that. Just trying to look at it from a plot and character. And there's a lot left wanting for this. So 
again, I, I think there's definitely an audience like that just want to see people shoot at each other. And but I, I need more. There's not enough here. So it's a week not recommend. Stewart. Yeah, my memory was when we covered Lethal Weapon and I said not recommend to it, I held up 48 Hours as a better version because it was more raw and more dramatic, because it it had a more sense of realism and danger and Walter Hill to it. Coming back, now I think, no, it's just as jokey, but the humor is more distressing because it's so, like, bogged down in the racial epithets and, and what have you. Spear chucker. I mean, like, things like that. And it's like, that's just a, a comedy killer. So I think that actually it's kind of a bland crime film. And it does not showcase San Francisco in the way that the Warriors showcased Manhattan. So despite the fact that I got a few Ajax is here, Luther is here, this is no Warriors. If you're going to like this movie, the only reason to see this movie, it is because it is the birth of Eddie Murphy Superstar. And he is finding his footing here, watching someone do a dress rehearsal. But I guess ultimately what I would say is since he is going to do this in other movies and they're going to be better... I don't know why you would need to endure what's not working in this movie to watch him. So for Eddie Murphy completist, maybe you want to see this. But I think I'd just rather wait and watch Beverly Hills Cop. I'm going to say that my feelings aren't strong either way. But if I must point an arrow, it's going to be down. I'm going to say mild not recommend. And this is a recommend for me. I mean, I understand that there are script problems. I see them and characterization problems, but they're not fatal. It's like the first gunshot Gan suffers. It knocks him down, but he gets back up and starts charging Nick Nolte anyway, even though that makes no sense, because again, you're running at the person with the gun. I have a lot of fun with this film, and I think so much of it comes down to the chemistry between Nolte and Murphy. And yes, a lot of the lines Nolte is given to say back then were terrible and today are downright repugnant. Yeah, do you like Nick Nolte in this? I know you're an Eddie Murphy fan. Are you a Nick Nolte fan? I'm not a Nick Nolte fan. I like Jack. Okay. And so I think the way the two of them bounce off each other in that odd couple kind of way is where I have my fun. If you had replaced Eddie Murphy with Gregory Hines... I have a feeling this would be a really bad not recommend from me. If everything were the same, but it was Gregory Hines, I can't imagine it having that chemistry. That was kind of what I was getting at, is that Nick Nolte, you're saying you had fun with the chemistry. It's one man doing all the the heavy lifting. The other guy is throwing really bad racist lines. I do feel chemistry, though, especially later in the film. I think as Eddie gets funnier, I feel Nolte playing along more, like Jack telling me a story. And I think that stuff was probably the stuff filmed later. Mm-hmm. And when Nolte and Murphy had a bit more rapport and Murphy wasn't screwing up or forgetting his every line and probably pissing off everybody on the set. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree that yeah, Nolte gets better as Eddie gets better. And I grew up in the 80s. There's no word in here I haven't heard. They're terrible words. They're in a 40-year-old movie. I can roll with they used that language back then. It's not something I like to hear, but it's not something that's going to make me turn it off either. Again, I go back to Blazing Saddles as the best usage of this, but this is all over the place in movies of the 70s and 80s. Again, Mr. T, DC Cap. Shocking language. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. 
So it's a recommend. It's not the strongest recommend. This is not Beverly Hills Cop, but it's a prologue to it, and it's a fun movie in its own right. I like Lethal Weapon better, the first one, but I like this better than, say, Lethal Weapon 3 or 4. Wow, come on. (laughs) Yeah, that was the weird thing, is I thought I would fight you on that, and now I'm like, I'm not sure what's the better movie. I mean, Lethal Weapon? Yeah, no, definitely Lethal Weapon 1 is better than this, but this is better than all the sequels. Yes, I kind of lean towards that. I don't feel like this one, by being grimy and dark and grungy, I don't feel like, again, I just don't think it's a good cop movie. And that's my big problem with it, is I remembered it as being a really good Walter Hill action movie, and it's Eddie Murphy trying out his material. That's the only reason to see it. Well, next week we're going to find out if they can improve on this formula. I'll promise you this, there's no use of the N-word. Right. Eddie Murphy is going to be a much different star when we get there. I think Nick Nolte is, too. So I'll be interested to see how they recalibrate. I assume it's going to be... You know, a version of the same thing, but these will be different actors coming back to it. They they have a different quality eight years later. I've never seen it, but I have seen the movie we're covering this Friday. And if you are a gold level donor, you can join us and help us take a look at Rosemary's Baby and those really strange eyes that it has. Yes, we are starting our gold level series, the last leg of our fall winter 2020 donation drive. Here's the really good news. We're in the last leg of 2020 altogether, including our donation drive, where we're doing some classic demon horror, Rosemary's Baby, there's three of those, and The Omen, there's five of those. So you get those eight reviews, plus our six silver level reviews of Wes Craven films for a donation of $25 or more. You can find the details at our website. And again, I know this is 2020. Times are hard. They're hard for us. And I know it's the holidays when money is always tight. But if you can pledge, it really does make a difference to helping now playing keep going twice a week, every week, this entire year. We hope we've been a bright spot to you in 2020. And if we have, hopefully you can support us so we can continue in 2021. And if you want to listen to our show, a lot coming up in the next few months to a year, with yesterday being Cyber Monday, we are having Cyber Monday week, where we're giving a 20% discount on our annual subscription to Now Playing. And with an annual subscription, you're going to end up getting about 400 bonus podcasts. You're going to get every donation series we've ever done, Child's Play, Jaws, The Spielberg, Close Encounters, E.T., War of the Worlds, Lord of the Rings, Leprechaun, Troll, Ghostbusters, Jurassic Park, Independence Day, Hunger Games, all the Quentin Tarantino films, and our current donation drive with The Omen, Rosemary's Baby, Last House on the Left, and Cloverfield, plus all of our one-off patron reviews like Hook, Clerks, The Dark Crystal, Castaway, Real Genius, Taxi Driver, Flash Gordon, Boogie Nights, Akira, Eyes Wide Shut, Big, The Nightmare Before Christmas. There are so many of these reviews. Apocalypse Now, The Witch, The Untouchables, Goodfellas, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and then every Easter egg show we've ever done, like Garbage Pail Kids, Zardoz, all of the Twin Peaks shows we did, Now Peaking. 
And then every bonus show we do for the next 12 months, be it a donation drive show, be it a patron exclusive show, you're going to be getting that for the next 12 months. I could just list them all, but you can get our entire archive, every show, and every show coming up for a year by being an annual subscriber. We're marking 20% off the annual subscription price, but that cost is about 70% off if you went through the Podbean archives and got all these shows one by one. And if this is your first time being an annual subscriber or even using Podbean, please email one of us at show at nowplayingpodcast.com. We'll be happy to answer any questions you have, walk you through the sign-up process and so on. Once again, it's 2020. We know things are tight for everyone. Things are tight for us. We were not immune to 2020's curse at all. So hopefully with this past week, with Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday, maybe have a podcast plethora Thursday. But if you donate gold or higher this drive or are an annual subscriber, we look forward to talking to you this Friday with the review of Rosemary's Baby and then the next two weeks of Rosemary's Baby with a sequel and a remake. And thank you to everyone who's donated so far. It really does help us out and mean the world to us. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time, me and my subdural hematoma are going home. If I ever hear you crossing the line, I'll bust your ass. Now, Jack, now that both of us know, I'm going to be an honest man from now on, right? But if I did decide to be a thief, what makes you think you can catch me? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Tell me how great you were. That was great. should have my big bronze. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Let's see what we can fuck with next. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. You better listen to him, you get your brain blown out. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. I make you feel good, you make me feel good. Now what the hell more do you want from a guy? You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Look, man, I've been waiting for some money for a long time, all right? You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our host to review. What do you want me to do? Go out and steal for the money? Find the details on our website. Thank you for a very pleasant day! You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, 
Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. You will keep your promise, right? You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Good thing your friends came when they did, Kate. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Might be a little more of a team player and a little less of a hot dog on this. Hot dog has been working real well so far. Associate produced by Jason Latham. I'm going to tell you something about this man. He's got more brains than you ever know. Got more guts than any partner I ever had. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. I have been having a very bad day. Now Playing credits read by Brock. Just cause you say it with conviction, it don't mean shit to me! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Who gives a fuck what you think? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. Did you hear a goddamn word I said? All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. I don't have time for this. I gotta go to work. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2020, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. I don't believe it! I got shot! You're done. End of story. Cats, Cats goes to Hammond in prison, and Hammond agrees. Cates goes to Hammond. In- K- yeah, it's Case, right? <laughs> yeah, Cates. Cates yeah. <laughs> go to Hammond in prison. I, I, I had a typo. <laughs> I'm like Cats. <laughs> Musical <laughs> Cats. The button. Now Jacob's excited. <laughs> Cates goes to Hammond in prison, and Hammond agrees to help Gates. Kate- oh, you said it. you said Case. Kate sounded like Cates. No, Case. It's- case. Okay. Okay. It you is. Got it right. C-A-T-E-S is how it's spelled. You could just it say is? Jack. Oh, okay. Yeah. My subtitles had case. That's weird. Okay. <laughs> Did you get them from online? Yeah, of course. Okay, but usually they're, they're untrustworthy. Usually they're, ripped, usually they're ripped straight from the DVD. So that's what's Maybe weird. it was the Taiwanese DVD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Roxy! You!